Luke chapter number 19 this morning, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 11. While you find your place there, I want to say thank you to our visitors, especially for being here. You're our honored guest, and we hope you feel at home in the Lord's house today. I trust you've come to hear from the Lord. Amen. And even for our regular folks and our members and folks that are regularly with us, I hope you've come to hear from the Lord. Amen. And uh, if we don't hear from the Lord, it's been a waste of time. You can come and hear from me and not hear anything worth hearing. But if we can hear from heaven today, then I believe that a great thing will have been accomplished. And that's our desire. Luke chapter number 19. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 11. Luke chapter number 19, verse number 11. The Word of God says, And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, Therefore, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him, sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well done, or well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said, Likewise to him be thou also over five cities." And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou thy money into the bank, that at my coming... I might have required mine own with usury. And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. They said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you, that unto every one which hath shall be given. And from him that hath not, even that which he hath shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them, before me. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. We don't take it lightly, Lord. There's folks all over the world that are literally risking imprisonment and death to be able to meet together like we do. Father, let us not take lightly what's transpiring here in this place today. Help my heart to be humble, to be open, to be searching. And Lord, I pray that as well for every person under the sound of my voice. I pray that the Spirit of God would do an eternal work in our midst today. There could be, under the sound of my voice, somebody that has never received Christ as their Savior. They've walked through life saying like these citizens will not have this man to reign over us. I pray that today would be the day when they would bow their heart and knee before you and they would own you as their Lord and Savior and they would see in you the only hope that they have of ever getting to heaven, of ever avoiding hell. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity and pray that you'd be magnified, glorified, exalted in everything that takes place today. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The Bible says in verse number 11, As they heard these things, he added, and spake a parable unto them. 
In the previous verses, the Lord Jesus wins to Himself a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a publican. Publican's a tax collector. Tax collectors were hated back then like they're hated today. Somebody say amen to that. And if you work for the IRS, I'm sorry, I can't help you, but... Uh, they, they did not care for tax collectors back then. But part of the reason for that, too, is they saw tax collectors as being an extension of being a, an arm of Roman authority and influence in their community. The Jews, in and of themselves, didn't pay taxes themselves. They, they paid uh, tithes under the temple, and uh, they gave alms to the poor, things like that. So Zacchaeus, being a tax collector, was a representative of the Roman Empire. And uh, whenever the Lord Jesus saves Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus, uh, his heart is changed, he immediately says he's going to give back not only what he took, but over and above what he took. Uh, the Jews around began to murmur. And they began to say, well, how dare the Lord Jesus treat so good this man that has been so ill and so evil to our people. And in verse 9, Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, forasmuch as he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. The context of this passage is the Lord Jesus has saved an undesirable man has called him into his service, has changed his life, and has entrusted him with the responsibility of going to those he has wronged and sharing the good news of what Christ has done for him. After this statement, though, those that were standing around began to say, well, maybe if he can save somebody like Zacchaeus, he's going to take over the whole area. He's going to save everybody. Like the Bible says, the Pharisees made the statement that all men go after him and go towards him. And so the Lord Jesus, in order to sort of temper what were their expectations, they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Now let me give you a real quick theological point that we all need to understand. There is a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a physical, uh, visible, literal kingdom, a kingdom in the sense that we normally think of a kingdom. You say, well, where is it right now, preacher? It's in heaven. It's the kingdom of heaven. You say, preacher, will it always be in heaven? No, one of these days that kingdom is going to sit down on earth and Christ is going to rule and reign in power and in glory from the throne of His father David in Jerusalem. But now the kingdom of God speaks of the jurisdiction, the spiritual jurisdiction and authority that God exercises over those that have given their hearts and lives unto Him. Uh, you remember that uh, one time they asked Him, said that, uh, is the kingdom of God about to appear? And He said, the kingdom of God cometh not with signs. It's not something you see. He turned and looked at Him and said, the kingdom of God is within you. In other words, if a person has given their heart and life to Christ, then they're a part of that kingdom of God. And uh, those that have not are not a part of that kingdom of God. Those that, like these citizens, have rejected the Lord, have said, I do not want Him as my Savior, uh, they are not a part of the kingdom of God. So the overall tone and the overall intent of this parable is to illustrate to those under the sound of the Lord's voice what exactly was going to be God's plan, God's timetable for the upcoming kingdom and the upcoming age. 
And in light of that fact, he says in verse number 12, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. I want to give you a few thoughts by way of introduction before we preach. Uh, when the Lord Jesus told this parable, you know, a parable had the intent of taking something that was familiar to those that were around and using it to express a spiritual truth. A parable had two responses, two effects. It either concealed truth from those that had no desire to know it, to believe it, or it revealed truth to those whose hearts were open to it. And that's part of the reason, by the way, you see those two responses. Uh, sometimes the disciples would hear and would apprehend what the Lord was saying, but everybody else around wouldn't understand what he was saying. And often the Lord Jesus would use things people were familiar with. For instance, when he talks about the sower and the seed, he uses that analogy to point to the power and effect and results of the Word of God in the hearts and lives of those that hear it. Well, why did he talk about that? Uh, Why didn't he give some other illustration? Well, he gave that illustration because many of the people under the sound of his voice were familiar with the idea of farming, of sowing seed, of raising crops, of reaping uh, harvests. When the Lord Jesus tells this parable, I believe there's probably a historical event he's hearkening back to. And this is going to bear on the message a little later. So I wanted to share it with you. When Herod the Great, who was uh, the king of the Jews or over the Jews, however we want to say it, Whenever the Lord Jesus was born, Herod the Great was the one that the wise men came unto, and and, uh, Herod the Great was the one that uh, instituted the genocide over all the children that were two years old and under. We're about there again, aren't we? (coughs) Whenever he did this, uh, that was Herod the Great. There were a lot of Herods uh, that were in succession. Well, when Herod the Great died in about 4 A.D., Right before he died, he had a son named Antipas. And Herod Antipas would later become uh, the Herod that we'd be familiar with. Herod Antipas was the one, by the way, that beheaded John the Baptist. Uh, But he also had a son named Archelaus. Archelaus was sort of the black sheep of the family. But shortly before Herod died, Archelaus had gotten back into favor with his father. So when Herod died, he left in his will that Archelaus was to be the successor to his throne. So Archelaus, after his father dies, he attempts to take possession of the throne. But the Jews that were there uh, did not like that. They did not want Archelaus to rule over them. And so they contested Archelaus's claim to the throne. So Archelaus departs Jerusalem and goes to Rome to petition Caesar uh, for his own uh, throne and to ask Caesar to support him in his bid for the throne. Whenever he left, there were certain Jews, by the way, that sent an envoy after him to also make presentation at the court and to say, we will not have this man Archelaus to reign over us. But before Archelaus went, he uh, history tells us, gave money to uh, his friends and his comrades, those that were loyal supporters of him, uh, to try to purchase and buy and win influence in his absence. So Archelaus, he goes to Rome, he meets with Caesar Augustus, uh, he uh, pleads for his cause, Caesar Augustus shows him favor, endorses him uh, and his right to the throne. He comes back to Jerusalem, and uh, when he gets back, those that had uh, attempted to thwart his rise to the throne, he took and slew and killed. Very likely, all this happened, by the way, when the Lord Jesus would have been just a young child. And no doubt this would have informed the parable that the Lord Jesus told. This would have been in their minds. They would have been familiar with it. It would have been similar to us if we were talking about an analogy relative to the Vietnam War or any other uh, event of the past 50, 60 years. So when the Lord Jesus tells this parable, it's not out of nowhere. 
And he uses that analogy to try to teach some spiritual truths. Now, this parable is marked by three things. I want you to notice them because they correspond to the age that we're living in. How many of you know this, that the Lord Jesus is not walking amongst earth, but he is coming back soon? This age that's described as the interval when the nobleman has departed and before his return was marked by three things. Number one, it was marked by the absence of the Lord. This nobleman left and he left his estate in the care of others. They had a responsibility. He left his uh, the, the place where he had been dwelling, where he had been influencing, and he went to a far country just like Archelaus had done to try to petition Caesar. He goes to a far country to receive a kingdom from his father. Let me say this to you. When the Lord Jesus comes back, he's not coming back to hold an election. He's not coming back to try to win favor. Uh, he may have came the first time as the meek Galilean, as the shepherd of Israel as the Lamb of God slain uh, since the foundation of the world. But when he comes back, he's coming back as the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He's coming back with power and in glory. He's not coming back to hold an election. He's coming back to set up a kingdom. It's marked by the absence of the Lord. We understand that God is still present in this world in the sense that His omnipotence and His omnipresence uh, still influences this world. We've not got rid of God. But we also know that the Lord Jesus is not on this earth right now. Uh, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So the church age is marked by the absence of the Lord. Let me say number two, this uh, period of time was marked by the insolence of the lawless. The reason that Archelaus left and the reason the nobleman in this parable left was because the citizens didn't want him there. One of the most tragic passages in all the Word of God is in Mark chapter number 5 when the Lord Jesus goes to Gadara, heals a man that nobody could have healed, changed his life in a way that nobody could have changed his life. This man had been a pariah in society. He had been a scourge upon their uh, sense, uh, their, their uh, senses of nobility and of what's right and of what's appropriate. They had castigated this man. Uh, he was a demoniac that they had uh, exiled to live amongst the tombs. He walked around cutting himself, crying, walking around uh, naked and dwelling amongst things that are dead. Uh, they hated him probably. Whenever people came to Gadara and heard the howling at night, they probably said, oh, don't pay that no mind. It's just coyotes, you know. Uh, probably if somebody said, where's your graveyard out there? They would have said, well, we don't have a graveyard. You don't even need to look for a graveyard. It's funny, man. The Lord Jesus can take our biggest problems, make them go away if he wants to, and if we're willing to allow him to. But whenever the Lord Jesus comes, He heals the man. He changes the man miraculously. And you know the story how that there's a herd of swine there. There's some folks watching over those swine. Jews didn't have no business keeping swine anyway, but there they were doing that. And the devils that were inside the maniac of Gadara, they pled with the Lord and they said, don't, don't send us thither. Don't just cast us out into nothing. Said, let us, let us go into these swine. And there's a lot I don't know, understand about that. I don't know why they picked the swine. I don't know what they were trying to accomplish, but that's what the Bible says. So the Lord Jesus permits them, and they leave this man, they enter into the swine, they run the swine headlong down the hill. And uh, all these swine drown in the sea. Well, listen, you destroy a big old herd of swine by casting a devil out of somebody, word's going to get around. And so these men that were tending these swine, they went back to the city of Gadara, and they began to tell people what they had seen. The Bible says that when the Gadarenes came out and saw Jesus, when they saw him, they saw this man, this maniac, and he was seated, clothed in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. They saw the miraculous power of God. The Bible says when they heard what had happened with the swine, they were exceeding fearful. And the Bible says then they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. They weren't ignorant. 
they, they weren't without witness. They had seen what Christ could do. But they said, no, thank you. We will not have this man to reign over us. I see the cry of rejection by these insolent citizens. They send word saying, we don't want his authority. I find that a lot of things in life come down to a matter of authority. And I find that most lost people, what they really have a problem with, most militant atheists, it's not that they can't believe, because they believe the fairy, uh, the, the fairy tale of evolution, which is far less, far le- listen now, far less scientific evidence than creationism does. They can believe that. They can believe any manner of things. It's not that they can't believe, it's that they won't believe. And they say, well, there's too many errors in the, in the Bible. Isn't that funny, man? I ain't never had anybody be able to show me one. A little bit of Bible study and a little bit of believing what God says above what man says wouldn't clarify. No, at the end of the day, what is it? We will not have this man to reign over us. Nobody's going to challenge our autonomy, our authority. Many of you, like I did, watched videos this past week of the New York State Legislature after they passed institutionalized murder. That's what it is. It's genocide. Genocide. If, 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 if a government killed 60 million of its own citizens in any other context, we would call that genocide. We would call that genocide. 60 million unborn children, they're a child, are, are, have been murdered since the institution of Roe v. Wade, and now they've passed a law. You understand that, you understand that it is only legal to give the lethal injection to an unborn child in the state of New York. You cannot give lethal injection to a convicted murderous, rapist, pedophile, what have you. But you can give it to an unborn child. It is only legal to give it to unborn children in the state of New York. You understand that with this provision, they stripped out of their state law and state statutes any rights or any any legal presence of that unborn child. In other words, if a man beats his pregnant wife to death in the state of New York, they can no longer charge him with what's been done to the unborn child. They have unpersoned unborn children in the state of New York. You understand, with the passage of this law, if they were to be performing an abortion in the state of New York, and that child was born anyway... It is now legal for them to murder that child after the child has been born in the state of New York. Now, listen, that, that's disgusting, although it shouldn't surprise us because that's the only natural conclusion of the logic that has been pervasive in the pro-death movement and pro-death cult for many, 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 many years now. But here's what was so troubling, and it turned your stomach if you saw it, I would say, I know it turned mine, is to see all these people stand up and clap. Clap. That's wicked. That's evil. That's depraved. And anybody that make excuses for it, you're going to have to answer to God one day. That's wicked. That's wicked. Why would they clap? You know why they clapped? It was a victory against what they perceived as religious oppression. You know why that, you know what they were doing? They were saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Nobody's gonna tell us what we can do. That's the world we live in today. And guess what? It ain't gonna get better. It's gonna get worse. It's gonna get worse. How can you even draw that line then? How can you even draw that line? Uh, let me tell you where things, you got about two hours. 
you, you know, you know how this happened. People, God's people, Christians, were willing to concede the question. They'd say, well, what about in the cases of rape and incest or in the health of the mother? So they would say. And people said, well, yeah, maybe in that case. No. Life begins at conception. You say, well, what about the cases of, of rape? Oh, so you don't want to execute the rapist, you just want to execute the baby. Because most people that support that line of thinking would also oppose the death penalty for rapists or pedophiles. So it ain't that you're against death. You just don't want to execute the, the, the rapist, you want to execute the baby. You're for death. You're just not for the death of the person that's perpetrated the crime. You're for the death of the unborn child. You say, well, preacher, those instances are tragic. I agree. They're also like less than 0.02% of instances of abortion. And they are awful. You say, what should we do? I think we ought to skin the rapist alive. And that put a stop to a lot of that mess. And we ought to do far worse to a pedophile. Uh, listen, I, I, I'm, I'm against it. But I'm saying, we let the camel get his nose under the tent. And if you do that, if you say it's a life except in these circumstances, then it's just a matter of where the goalposts are sitting. And it's going to go further and go further and go further. And now we've got this thing. They say, well, you know, it's just a clump of cells. It's not really a life because it's dependent upon the mother and it's an inconvenience to the mother. So are half of your all's grown kids. You going to murder them? Hey, listen, I'm just saying, what is that? You and I, we struggle to understand it. We look at it and say, how could people do this? But to them, to them it's their battle cry. We will not have this man to reign over us. Notice their cry of rejection. But notice that there's a day of destruction coming. The king is coming back. And when he does, he'll rule with a rod of iron. The Bible says in righteousness. Righteousness. There's coming a day they're going to have to answer. And you and I are going to have to answer too. It ain't just them. We're going to have to answer for the way we've lived, what we've condoned, what we have endorsed, what we have signed our name to, what we have permitted, what we have held our tongue about. We're going to have to answer for that one day. Every one of us will. There's coming a day of destruction. But then I want you to notice there is a third thing that marks this age. It's marked by the absence of the Lord and the insolence of the lawless. But let me say that it's also marked by the presence of the loyal. The nobleman left. The citizen said, we don't want this man to reign after us. He'll deal with them one day. But there were some folks that were willing to stick in, stay in, and serve their Lord in the midst of such a condition. I see that their nobleman gave them three things. Well, Notice with me, first off, he gave them a promise. He said, occupy, what's his next three words? Till I come. He said, I'm going away. I'm going to be gone for a while. He didn't say when, but he said, you mark her down. One of these days, I am coming back. Man, listen, I'm glad all the wickedness of this world. And again, it was wicked before this past week. It's still wicked today. It was murder six months ago. It's still murder today. It was murder 50 years ago. It's still murder today. In many ways, it's being shoved in our face and it turns our stomach. But society was evil then. It's still evil now. And in this wicked day, I'm glad that we have the blessed hope of the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave him a promise. Number two, he gave him a pledge. He gave to each of them a pound. 
I sort of looked at that. I, I, I don't know, man. Maybe I'm just carnal. Maybe I'm just silly. But I was reading that, verse 16, Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And all I could think about was Thanksgiving. Amen? <laughs> Listen, maybe I'm foolish, but that's all I could think about was Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. My pound hath gained ten pounds. I said, Preacher, why are you in that kind of shape? The Lord's just trusted me more than He's trusted you. That's all it is. He give, he give you a pound or two, man. He loaded me up. And I'm multiplying it, too. I'm not sitting back being lazy about it. He gives them, we understand it's money. The Bible even says clearly in verse number 15, to whom he had given the money. This was a monetary value. Uh, these were pieces of currency that he entrusted to them. Let me tell you something. God has blessed us with some things in this church age. Never before in human history, before the church age, have men been indwelt by the Holy Ghost and all the gifts that He brings. I ain't talking about tongues. I ain't talking about hitting you with my suit coat. I ain't talking about sneezing on you and telling you you're better. I'm talking about what the Bible says are the fruit of the Spirit. I'm talking about gentleness and meekness and faith. I'm talking about the way that God empowers us through His Spirit to serve Him and to walk in righteousness. God's blessed us. Man, we could we could just park here and preach. And I don't have time to, but God's blessed us with a lot of things. The air that you breathe, uh, what mind that you've got, He's blessed you with. The opportunities that you have, the influence that you have. Uh, a, a, a perfect, preserved, inspired Bible that we can hold and preach and believe. It's saying God's given us some things. And where there is blessing, there is responsibility. Because I see in this passage, He gave him a purpose. He gave him a command. He said, I'm giving you all these things, and here's what I want you to do with them. I want you to occupy till I come. I want to give you three thoughts very quickly this morning. You thought I was about to close, didn't you? I want to give you three simple thoughts about what comes to my mind when I hear that word occupy. You know, certain things mean different things in different contexts. You can say a word in one context, it means one thing, means something in another. The Bible's no different. Uh, there are certain words in the Bible. That's the reason. Let, listen, let your King James Bible be its own dictionary. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's a sin to look at a concordance. I'm not saying it's a sin to see how the translators use the words. But I'm saying this, the best dictionary that you're going to get, one written by Strong's or Cruden's or Young's, the best one is that Bible itself. And the context oftentimes will dictate. But when I see this word occupy, it makes me think of three things. Number one, it speaks to me of a habitation. For instance, if you were to go to a hotel or uh, if you were even to go to a public restroom, uh, a lot of times you'll go and if there's a lock on the door, uh, you'll see it. If it's locked, it'll say what? It'll say occupied. And what it's saying to you is there's someone in here. When a person takes up residence in a home, we say they have occupied it. There is an occupation of that location, that building, of that structure. And I think, number one, this morning, that in this wicked day that we live in, listen, we've all, we, 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 we've, we've raged a little bit. We, we have, we've made our stand clear and I'm happy to do it. Let me tell you something. If I had been preaching on heaven, I would have said what I said about abortion. If I had been preaching on Adam's belly button, I would have said what I said about abortion. We need to take a stand, my friend. We've raged. We've took our stand. Uh, listen, we, we've, we've made our place clear, but what do we do with it? If it don't reach down and touch us and change us, 
then it don't mean anything. Let me say that when I think of a habitation, it reminds me of three things that Christians are to be. Number one, we must be present in order to occupy. We must be present in order to occupy. You're not occupying a location unless you are present there. I tell people all the time, folks will say sometimes, occasionally visitors or something, they'll come in and they'll say, well, where should I sit? I say, sit anywhere you want to sit. They'll say, well, I don't want to sit in nobody's seat. Ain't nobody got a seat. Not Walridge Baptist Church. And if you think you do, you need to readjust yourself. You say, well, whose seat is it? Whoever gets there first. Same thing goes songs. People say, well, that's my song. That ain't your song. Did you write it? If you wrote it, copyright it, and then you can charge everybody else a nickel when they sing it. In other words, you got to be present. I grew up, man. I, I had a brother. I had a sister. I knew what it was like. We lived by the rules of shotgun. Somebody say amen to that. Man, you'd go out and you'd see that car sitting there. And the first thing, shotgun. What were we saying? We're saying, that's my seat. Ain't nobody in it. It's mine. You can't occupy a place if you're not present in it. I want you to listen very carefully. We as Christians, we are commanded and commissioned to never be of this world. The Bible says it teaches separatism. I believe in being a separatist. Come out from among them, Paul said, and be ye separate. I believe in being a separatist. I believe if there's something contrary to the truths and tenets of God's Word, then we ought to put a, a separation between the clean and the unclean, just like they did in the Old Testament. But let that never lead us down a path of isolationism. Isolationism is not a biblical concept. The idea of, well, I'm going to get me and my little family and I'm going to shut the world out and I'm going to build a bubble around everyone and I'm going to keep them out. I'm never going to go and I'm never going to witness to a lost person. I don't want them rubbing off on me. I'm never going to go out and operate and function in the world. You don't find that anywhere in your Bible. Christ said this in John 17, 15. He was praying to His Father and He said, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They're in the world, Christ said. He said, but don't be of the world. We've got to be present to occupy. It, it wouldn't have done if they had... You, you know what? <laughs> oh my. You know what would have happened if they had taken that pound and run off with it? It would have been a thief. You know what a Christian is? It takes the talents and blessings and abilities that God has given them and does nothing with it. They're a thief. A thief. See, the reality is this. A lot of times we want to stand on the sideline and look and watch everybody else do and work and serve and labor. But every one of us, God has put a pound, or a lot of them, a pound in our care. And what are we going to do with it? They had to be present. Let me say number two, for a person to be, uh, to occupy a place, they have to be persistent. If a person comes to a place but does not stay there, they're not an occupier, they are a visitor. An occupant of a place is someone that at least for a reasonable amount of time stays in that location. Let me say as Bible believers that if we're going to make a difference in this world, uh, we've got to be persistent in our attempt to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I did not say annoying. I did not say obnoxious. I said persistent. You say, preacher... What's the difference between persistence and annoyance? The difference is who it is that you're motivating. If you're trying, if you're trying to coerce them, that's annoying. But if you're trying to coerce yourself, 
If you're trying to motivate yourself, if you're saying, I'm not going to give up, I'm going to stick in, I'm going to stay in, they may have turned me away, they may hate me, they may despise me, I'll go down the road, find somebody else that wants to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, but whatever happens, I'm not giving up, I'm not giving out, I'm not giving in, I'm going to stay on serving the Lord. Persistence. Let me say number three, an occupier is someone that exhibits prudence. One thing that you'll learn real quickly, if you're in the rental business, not everybody's like this. There's, there's people that rent and take better care of their stuff than anybody could ever imagine. But I just got a call this past week, in fact, from a lady that uh, she had rented her. She had to go away for a few months, and she had rented her place to somebody. And uh, she got back. She, she was calling them, trying to get a hold of them. Couldn't get no answer. They just fell off the face of the earth. And so she came back down from where she was at. She was staying out of state. She came back down and came to the place that she was living. She said it was trashed. She said it just looked like a bomb had went off on the inside. And I find this is often, not always, not always, somebody at rents is going to come up and fuss me out after the service. Not, not always. Please understand that. Not always. But very often, people that don't own it don't take care of it. Very often that's true. Not always, but very often that's the case. And in fact, if you rent, part of what probably motivates you to rent is you have less to take care of. Something breaks, call the landlord. Ain't mine, it's his. Listen, we as Bible believers, we ought to take an ownership of the position of influence and service that God has placed us in. We ain't just... I understand we're pilgrims passing through. But until we've passed through, until God's taken us home, He's planted us in a place and given us responsibilities. And if, uh, listen, if we ain't gonna do it, ain't nobody gonna do it. There's people God's called you to witness to that if you don't witness to them, they ain't gonna get witness to. And it's real easy to say, well, that's somebody else's job. If you're an occupant, that's not what you say. If you're an occupant, you say, hey, it's my job to keep the yard mowed. My job to keep the roof fixed up. My job to keep the paint on the walls. My job as a Bible believer, as a Christian, as an occupant in this world. It's your job and mine to win the loss to Christ. Your job and mine to make the church what it ought to be. Your job and mine to serve and labor in the ministry and in the work of job. Your God, your job and mine to take a stand and to be willing to stand on the truth of God's Word. It, it ain't nobody else's responsibility. It's your responsibility. It's my responsibility. When I hear the word occupy, it makes me think of a habitation. Number two, when I hear the word occupy, it makes me think of a vocation. For instance, a lot of times we'll call a job or a task an occupation. A person has a job, a task, a responsibility. It's an occupation. It is a vocation. A vocation. And certainly, I believe this would be the most bearing upon the text. Because I believe that's what this nobleman did. He left these men with a job to do. What was their job? Notice three things. Number one, it was their job to invest. Whenever the nobleman comes back, one fellow runs up, he says, this pound's gained ten pounds. And he says, you've done well. Another one runs up and says, this pound's gained five pounds. He didn't fuss at him. He didn't say, well, how come you didn't gain ten pounds? This fellow gained ten pounds. No, he said, you've done well because you did the best you could. You did what I called you to do. But then there's another fellow walks up the napkin in his hand. And he carefully unrolls that napkin and unfolds it, and there's that pound. 
And he says, Lord, here's the pound that you gave me. He said, I, I, I knew you were an austere man. John Wesley, they said, preached on that one time. And, uh, or no, he had a preacher boys. They used to criticize John Wesley. They said all of his preacher boys weren't educated enough. They hadn't gone to all the Ivy League seminaries. And, uh, they said one time that, uh, one of John Wesley's preachers, uh, young preacher boys got up preached on this passage. And somebody came up to him afterwards and criticized him because that young preacher boy had preached on the fact that God is an oyster man said he dives deep down to find the choice oysters, pries them open, gets that pearl out. They said, Mr. Wesley, you need to educate these boys. He said, you say what you want, but the Lord rescued six pearls today. <laughs> he says, I knew you were an austere man. I knew that you, you, you took up things that you hadn't laid down and you reaped on places that you had not sown. So he said, so what I did is I took this thing, I hid it, I rolled it up in a napkin and I buried it. Let me tell you something. That fellow did two things. Number one, he did nothing. And number two, he lied. And, and, and the nobleman calls him on. He says, if you really believe that I'm an austere man, if you believe that I'd come back expecting something, then why didn't you do anything? He says, at the very least, you could have took that, put it in someone else's hands and let them do something with it. How many times do you hear somebody say, I can't do anything for the Lord? You know what I found? Eight years of pastoring. Most people that say I can't do anything for the Lord have never tried. I know they haven't. You know how I know? Because if they'd tried, they'd find out they may not be able to do like the fellow with ten pounds or the fellow with five pounds, but everybody can do something for the Lord. You may not be able to do what somebody else can do, but let me tell you something. Nothing is never an acceptable response to what the Lord has blessed us with. Too many of us want to do nothing. We want to take what God's given us and just give it back to Him in the same shape that we got it. Hey, some of us, we ain't served God until that, uh, since that day that we got up off an altar. Some of us, we ain't handed out a track, witnessed anybody, shared the gospel ever in our Christian. That ain't going to cut it one of these days. You're going to stand before God. And He expects more than what He gave you. I see that we've got to invest. Number two, we've got to increase. We've got to increase. I've already preached all around this. I'm not going to dwell on it. But what he's saying is this. I have given you all the resources necessary to be further along in this venture than you were when you started. Can I ask you a simple question? We sometimes set the bar so low. I, listen, I'm glad people setting the bars low. I, my wife would have never married me if there wasn't folks that set the bar low. But she set that bar way down there and married me. I, I understand, but we set the bar so low. We think if we end our life and we ain't made shipwreck, that we've really done something for God. We think if we're still in church next year, like we are this year, and I hope you are, and listen, you ought to feel good if you are, but you ought not take that as meaning you've made great strides for the Lord. Can I ask you a simple question? Are you further along in your walk with Christ today than you were five years ago? Or are you hanging on to that pound and that napkin and feeling real good about yourself? We're expected not just to exist, but to advance. And then let me say this. I believe we are expected to influence. Because remember, in the minds of the hearers, I told you we'd hearken back to this. In the minds of the hearers, he is referencing something that happened about three decades earlier. And what he's saying to them, the same way that Archelaus... Whenever he went to Rome, he left money in the hands of his supporters. Not just so they could have money. Not just so they go out and live a lavish lifestyle. But they were to take that and to try to buy and win and, listen carefully, influence people and purchase their allegiance for Archelaus. 
I got news for you. God has blessed us with a lot of things. I said the other day I was preaching, I said, God only ever gives you what you need. And I had to back up because that ain't true. God's given me more than what I need. God has always given me what I need. I got a lot of things I don't need that God's blessed me with. But let me say that God doesn't bless us with the blessings that He gives us just so that we'll be real blessed. And that's part of the problem with, with the charismatic, name it and claim it, word of faith movement. They make it seem as though God's end goal is just for you to be fat and rich and happy. God's intention by blessing you is not that you have money in your hand, but that you have the ability, listen now, to influence people and to win people to Christ. God didn't give you your health just so you'd feel good. He gave you your health so that you could serve Him. God didn't give you that job and the paycheck that comes from it just so you'd have a job and a paycheck. He gave it to you so you could invest back into the work of God. God didn't give you the mind that He gave you just so that you can sit around and do Sudoku. God gave you that mind so that you could witness to people. Read your Bible. Grow in the Lord. Everything He's given you with, He's given you so that it will have both an internal effect and an external effect. And we are too internalized today. We are too focused on me, me, me. What are you doing with what God has blessed you with? And finally, and I'm done. When I hear the word occupy, it makes me think of a, uh, of, of a habitation. It makes me think of a vocation. But I also, when I hear the word occupy, almost more than the other two points, it makes me think of a military operation. There are several. In fact, I jotted it down. I don't have it in my notes, but... I think we've had, in the history of America since 1815, we've had 24 military occupations. Now, an occupation is different than a conquest or an invasion. There are a few things that are different. First off, the tactic, the goal of an occupation is different than an invasion. When you're invading a place, your goal is to go in, divide, conquer, period. Uh, Your goal is to put your flag where their flag was and to say, this is now mine. It's funny, man. Listen, postmodernism has completely rewrote history. And they talk all the time about imperialism, imperialism. You wouldn't read or write today without imperialism. I'm going to say that again just to make sure you got it. You wouldn't be reading or writing today without imperialism. Somebody said, hey, we can do better with that than they can do with it. And that's what they did. And you say, well, preacher, you know, what about the indigenous peoples? Listen, there's a lot of atrocities happen. Don't misunderstand me. There's a lot of, 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 of gross things that happen. Our government lied to indigenous people and, 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 and pillaged their land and this and that. Let me ask you something. Uh, you want to be chasing a buffalo every time you get hungry? Hey, it's all right. <laughs> it's all right. Uh, we can't even celebrate Columbus. I didn't even know I wanted to celebrate Columbus Day till they told me I couldn't do it. I'm, I'm just saying this. We, we saddle everything on, oh, the imperialism of Western civilization. World wouldn't be what it, the world would still be spiraled in abject poverty were it not for imperialism. We've rewrote history. That used to be the goal, imperialism. Now we don't do that no more. We have occupations. And the difference being this, in an invasion you're wanting to conquer, but in occupation, you're not trying to win the war. You're not trying to conquer the place. You're trying to do this and this alone. You're trying to go in and exert influence in the location that you're at. 
Listen, I got news for you. I, I know it's easy sometimes to get on Facebook and, and, and YouTube and watch TV and there's all these patriotic things, all us Bible-believing Christians. If we just put aside all the doctrine we believe, we can all yoke together and we're going to pray America back to God and all this and that. And, and listen, I believe in revival. I believe God's still working today. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm saying this, God ain't going to sanction nothing that's not right. But there's this great endeavor to, to try to do this. Uh, you know what I find in my Bible? Evil men and seducers are going to wax worse and worse. Worse and worse. This know that in the last days perilous times shall come. Uh, the Bible says that men shall be lovers of their own selves. Uh, that, that they'll be uh, w- without natural affection. Things are going to get worse. But remember, our goal as Bible believers is not to win the war. we got a king coming back. He's going to win the war. Our job is to occupy. That's what we're tasked with. And what is our responsibility to be an influence in the place that God has put us? Then I also notice that the temporal nature of an occupation is different from an invasion. When a person invades, they have the intention of, of uh, planting down stakes, of making that. Of, uh, we call it annexing. We're going to annex that. It's going to be a part of us now. But that's not what an occupation tries to do. Uh, the purpose of an occupation, it's temporary in nature. You're going to go, you're going to be there, but ideally... You're going to turn that thing back over. You're only going to be there for a little while. And can I just remind you, the Bible says very clearly that you and I are pilgrims and strangers in this present world. You know why we can't effectively serve the Lord, many of us? Because we have not, we, we've done sunk our tent stakes in this world. We're too yoked up to it. We're too hooked up to it. We care too much what the world thinks. We're too dependent on what the world gives us. And we don't know what to do now. He said, Preacher, what can we do? We can pull up tent stakes. We can start living like pilgrims and strangers. We can start letting there be a difference between how we live and how the world lives. We ain't never going to make a difference, friend, until we pull up those tent stakes. We're only here for a little while. Our light affliction, Paul says, which is just, it's but for a moment. It's but for a moment. We're going to step five seconds inside of glory and immediately look backwards and say how little time we had. It's temporary in nature. But then I'd have you notice... And I really am done when I say this. See how much grace I've still got in your eyes. The territory of a military operation, of an occupation. I thought this was interesting. I look up some stuff about occupations. I'm not a military strategist or historian. But one of the things that stuck out to me in studying this thing of a military occupation, over and over and over again it said this, that the territory of a military occupation is defined by how much territory they can reasonably and realistically exert influence over. In other words, you say, well, preacher, how do we know what's occupied by what's occupied? It's not like you go in and draw boundaries on a map and say, this is the occupation. It's part of the reason if you study World War One, World War One was a war of inches, they called it. And they literally fight for weeks to take ground. Why? Because if they didn't hold the ground, they didn't have the ground. Wherever you actually planted your flag, wherever you actually put your boots, that is what defines the parameters of a military occupation. Can I just say this to God's people today? Again, man, it's easy. We live in a society today that's addicted to, to, to meaningless rage. That's all we do. We all just sit around. Let our endorphins fire off by being angry at stuff. You, you want to, you want the church, you want Christians to have a greater influence in this world? Then be a greater influence. 
Your territory is defined by where you set your boots down. You want to change this world? Don't don't become a keyboard warrior and get there and oh we we're gonna show them all. We're gonna we're gonna share this. We're gonna post that. We're gonna do this. We're gonna do that. That's gonna show them. They don't care. Uh, they have no interest in that. That's just something to keep you distracted. Uh, like when you take your laser pointer and and run along the wall just so your cat has something to chase that he ain't never gonna catch. You want to make a difference in this world? Start living separate from this world. Start sharing the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, start showing people that there's a different way of living than what this world offers them. Lead by example. Because the only place that you have territory is where you have influence. Let me ask you this simple question. What are you doing for Christ? Can you answer that? Can you answer it immediately? Can you answer it honestly? What are you doing for Christ? The command's simple. Occupy. Occupy. A lot of us are AWOL when we should be occupying. Are you occupying till He comes?